in his work on the origin of species. It was used in his theory on evolution and natural selection, and it came to have other applications as well, especially in eugenics later on. And yet this idea wasn't new to Darwin. Throughout the history of the world, the majority of cultures have seen us better off without the weak. Better off without the weak. We've seen it in Plato and Aristotle in the 4th century BC when they argued that it would be immoral to rear defective children that they needed to be disposed of. We saw these types of conclusions lead to genocide, such as Holocaust. And when we hear of such horrific statements and atrocities that are downright evil and utterly devoid of love and compassion, we can't help but feel a moral imperative to protect the vulnerable and to help the weak. Many today, whether in the church or outside, are blowing that trumpet. And so it's nothing new. But where does this actually come from? Where does that desire within you to protect the weak actually come from? Well, beginning in the first chapter of the Bible, we're told that mankind is created in the image of God. That we carry dignity and worth and value. That we are like God. Not because of anything that we have done, not because of our strength, not because of our ethnicity or gender, but because we are human. We are created by God. And yet even in the midst of our sin and rebellion, God did not just do away with us. He didn't do away with us like some have argued throughout history. Instead, his love and his compassion came to the down and outs like you and me. It came to us as sinners. It came and it took on flesh and it dwelt among us. As the author Glenn Scrivener has put it in his book, The Air We Breathe, which is a recent book that just was published, wonderful book, I highly encourage you to pick that up. He put it this way, if natural selection means the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest, Christianity is about the sacrifice of the fittest, Jesus Christ, for the survival of the weakest, us. It's no wonder that this ethic of love ought to characterize the church because it displays the very heart of our God. And one such passage that showcases his heart and his heart, ultimately of his people, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. We're going to be thinking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. This summer, we've taken a break from studying the book of Acts to spend time considering some of Jesus' most famous stories, known as Jesus' parables. Often when Jesus would teach his disciples, he would cast a parable alongside his teaching to illustrate a spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. In fact, that's what parables are. They're stories that illustrate spiritual truths about God's kingdom. They teach us about what Jesus' kingdom is like and how we're to live as citizens of his kingdom. And for those who have ears to hear, Jesus' parables actually reveal his identity as the very king of the kingdom. But as we've learned, they also serve another purpose. They're used by Jesus to actually conceal spiritual truths about his very identity. 
as the king of the kingdom. That for those who don't have ears to hear, whose hearts are hardened to him and his teaching, it actually serves as an act of judgment toward them. And so parables served, in one sense, as an act of revelation to those who responded to Jesus in faith, and an act of judgment to those who actually rebelled against him and were hardened to him and his teaching. Clearly, what we've seen in these parables is that they are far from being some sweet bedtime tales with just a moral lesson tagged on to the end of them, nor are they just a scavenger hunt where we extract symbols from every nook and cranny of the text to come up with this massive, obscure, complex meaning within the text. Very simply, these parables are stories that are meant to reveal the full glory of Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom. That's what they're meant for. And we're going to see that today in our final parable of the summer, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Follow along as I read. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, that is to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And Who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Well, our passage really needs to be understood in relation to all the passages surrounding it. It's no coincidence that a parable about loving one's neighbor actually comes right after a text about mission, where Jesus points, where he appoints and sends out 72 of his disciples to declare that the kingdom of God is near. We see that at the very beginning of Luke chapter 10. It's also no coincidence that Jesus declares in the passage just before ours that the Father has hidden the truths of the kingdom from the wise and intelligent just before, who do you know? What do you know? 
the expert in the law, tests Jesus about the law. It's also no coincidence that this lawyer, who thought he knew the Father as an expert in the law, is coming face to face with the one who actually reveals the Father. The irony is thick. The parable of the Good Samaritan is at one and the same time combating the desire to restrict who you love by illustrating how you love. It's combating the desire to restrict, to limit who you love by illustrating how you love. More important than who you love is how you love because of who's loved you. And I think that's getting at the point of the parable. And I think it's this, that we live out Jesus' love by not limiting who we love. We live out Jesus' love by not limiting who we love. I think that's the point of this parable. And there are really two questions that drive this message in this text. The lawyer's question in verse 29 and Jesus' question back at him in verse 36. The first question initiates the parable. The second changes the question to teach the parable's point. That's what the second question is doing. And those two questions really form our two points. Point number one, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? That's the first point. Point number two is the question, what kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor are you? So who is my neighbor and what kind of neighbor are you? Point number one, who is my neighbor? Well, this parable somewhat starts off like a sparring match. In one corner, we've got the lawyer. In the other corner, we have got the teacher. When we think about lawyers, usually we think about those who are experts in civil or criminal law. However, lawyers during Jesus' day were academic experts on the interpretation of the law of Moses. If there was anyone who would have known the law of God, it was this guy. He knows a lot. He's an academic. He regularly studies the Old Testament law and on interpretation of that law. He's wise and intelligent in the world's eyes, as we saw in the previous passage. And because he was an expert and potentially seeing Jesus as a threat to his authority, he tests Jesus. And so he asked Jesus, well, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like the rich young ruler that we learned about in our Mark Bible studies this summer, this man wants to know what he must do to be saved. We've seen this question before with the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? But this lawyer is also working out an ulterior motive within him by asking this question. After all, he did come to test Jesus. He's got an ulterior motive. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He knows he's an expert. And so look at how he responds. He asks the question, what's written in the law? How do you read it, right? You're the expert. The lawyer gives Jesus a summary of the law in verse 27. That's what it is. It's a summary. And it's summed up, the law, in two principles. The first comes from the Jewish confessional statement known as the Shema, 
from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The word Shema is just the Hebrew word for hear. And that's how that confessional statement would begin. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it continues with our verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It continues with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So because of who God is and what he's done to redeem his people, love him with all that you are. That's the point. That's what's meant by the heart, soul, strength, and mind peace. We're to love God with the very totality of our being. Everything within us. These two principles sum up the law of God. The second principle, to love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus 19.18. And it shows us that a true love of God will reveal itself in loving others as ourselves. Right? It's no surprise that you're going to love yourself by seeking to do what's best for yourself. And so you ought to love people like that. Love others as yourself. You cannot love someone as yourself without first and foremost loving God. That is important. The order is important. Love for God comes before love for neighbor. Love for neighbor flows out of a love for God. We cannot truly love our neighbor without first and foremost a love for God. These two principles sum up the law of God. And Jesus says in verse 28, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So understand what Jesus is saying here. Clever as he is. If you keep the law of God perfectly, legitimately, you're going to have eternal life. (laughs) If you keep it perfectly. But the only one who can keep it perfectly is God himself. This is a way of salvation. But the kicker is that it's impossible. (laughs) It's an impossible way of salvation. The lawyer can know all of the law, but he can't keep all of the law. There's a difference between knowing everything theologically and then keeping everything practically perfectly. That's extremely difficult. (laughs) It's impossible, in fact, because we're sinners. Because it's not only about keeping the letter of the law, but about keeping the law's heart, about keeping the spirit of the law as well. Obedience is a matter of the heart. Jesus made that point all throughout his ministry. All throughout his ministry. He levels up the ante when he comes in teaching. And so Jesus is not saying that salvation can be earned by good deeds. He knows that nobody can keep the law perfectly. He knows that. Instead, Jesus planted a reverse trap on this lawyer to expose how needy he really is as one who is trying to look to his good deeds to earn his salvation. It's a reverse trap. No one can fully keep the law because the law was not meant to save. But what was its purpose? What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to show us God's holiness, was to show us our sinfulness, And because of our sinfulness, our need for a savior. That's the law's purpose. So the law was not meant to save us. The law actually condemned us and exposed how spiritually bankrupt 
we really are. And to show this expert in good deeds how desperate he is, Jesus flips the script on him to expose his utter inability to fulfill the law's demands. Only Jesus can do that. But the lawyer, the lawyer doesn't go down easy, right? He's going down swinging. And he knows how hard it is to fulfill the law. That's why he throws up verse 29. And he says this, But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The lawyer wanted to narrow his definition of neighbor to make the law more doable. Right? If I only have to love this group of people right here that are easy to love, that's going to make it a little bit easier for me to get eternal life. He was a great stand-up guy. Probably a very holy guy, so to speak. He wanted to justify the way that he loves others. He's not denying the requirement to love those in need. Instead, he's restricting that requirement to make it attainable. If he could loosen the requirements of the law, then he really wouldn't have to love his enemies. No way. I can just love all the people that are just like me, the people of God, the Jews, inside the family of God. It's well documented that during this time period, many believed that they were obligated to love the people of God. And that's it. As one scholar put it, the word neighbor had a reciprocal meaning. He is a brother to me and I to him. The lines were carefully drawn to ensure that the well-being of those who were inside were taken care of and actually to deny help to those who were on the outside. Well documented. In essence, this lawyer was asking Jesus, so Jesus, who do I actually have to love? Who? do I have to love? Tax collectors? Do I have to love Gentiles? What about those heretics? You know, those Samaritans. What about them? Do I have to love them? Romans? But instead of answering his question, Jesus, what? Gives him a parable. And he poses a better question. And so Jesus tells a story about a man, probably from Jerusalem, who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this Jericho is not the Old Testament Jericho where the walls came a-tumbling down. That is not the Jericho that this is speaking about. This Jericho is about 17 miles outside of Jerusalem, near the Jordan River. And in that 17 miles, it was a, thir- a 3,300 drop in elevation. 3,300 feet, feet drop in elevation. And so it was mountainous which meant that thieves could hide out, they could rob, they could hurt, and they could flee without ever even being seen. You can think of it like a dark alley in a modern city today. You don't want to go down that alley. Not with the ones, you know, with the trash cans on the side, and you just don't want to do that alone, right? You want somebody going with you. Well, this guy, he didn't have anybody else with him. And as this man was traveling, he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, fled, and they left him half dead on the side of the road. And yet, we get a sign of hope. I mean, if, if, if you're Jewish and you're, re- and you're hearing Jesus talk about this, you're like, hope of hope? Who comes to the rescue? Two important men see this man. And they're not just any man. They are a priest 
and a Levite. These are religious men. Surely, surely this guy's going to get the help that he needs. The priests served in the temple, and their highest obligation was to offer sacrifices to God for the people. The Levites were those who were descended from the tribe of Levi, and they assisted the priest in the service of the temple. And yet we see that both saw the man, but they, downer of all downers, (laughs) fled and left and passed this guy on the other side. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Well, there are several practical and theological reasons why they would have done that. One might have been that it was due to Jewish purity and cleansing laws that said that if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. So as a result, right, you'd have to go through a a rigorous cleansing ritual in order to resume your priestly duty. So probably seeing this guy, maybe they saw him, they thought he was dead, they were like, ah, I don't want to have to go through all that this week and not be able to serve in the temple. It's possible that that's one of the reasons why they passed him by. They didn't want to inconvenience themselves in their work But they didn't know Hosea 6.6 very well, where God says that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Where Hosea was condemning God's people for idolatry, and one form of that idolatry bore the fruit of excusing the oppression of the poor among them while also offering sacrifices before God like nothing was going on. Clearly, they had missed Hosea 6.6. I mean, after all, what's more important, right? Being able to go to work or human life? Got to think about that one. These men were the most qualified men to be able to help this man. They were close to God. They worked in the temple. They distributed alms to the poor. They saw sacrifices given in faith for the forgiveness of their sins day after day after day. After day, these were religious health professionals who helped the needy for a living. And that is part of the irony of this text. But out of self-interest, they passed by. And if those who were most qualified didn't help, how much more do we need to actually heed this warning? How much more do we need it if those who are around it constantly just pass by? Just because you're religious doesn't mean that you'll get it right. Jesus has a way of upending expectations. These men had a lot of good things on their schedules, and yet they neglected the most important one that happened to be on their schedule that day. Friends, how might your schedule Restrict your ability to love your neighbor. How might your schedule, all the important things that you've got going on, and you do have important things going on, you have very good things going on, but how might that schedule restrict your ability to love your neighbor? All those important things, church meetings, work, work work-related events, hobbies, family functions, and kids' soccer games. I mean, you name it, all the things that you've got going on. But have we gotten so busy with our schedules that we've neglected the necessity of mercy? Have we neglected the necessity of mercy? In what ways have we really positioned our lives 
so that we don't really see those in need. Where we have unknowingly limited our care for our neighbor because of where, who, and how we live our lives. We just don't go around those who may be needy. Is our attitude toward those in need one of inconvenience and uncomfortability versus that of compassion? What's your attitude toward them like? One of the reasons that we've not crowded out our church calendar since planting is to actually give us time to be able to minister to one another and also to minister to others, right? Of just not having something every night of the week or necessarily every night of every single week. Oftentimes we do everything every other week which for some may be odd. But there are needs that are all around us, and they're quite diverse. Ever since Genesis 3, our sin has alienated us in our relationship, first and foremost, with God. Not only with God, but also even with ourself. Not only with us, but even to others and to the world around us. Might we have forgotten that we actually live on the Jericho Road? We live on the Jericho Road. We live in a fallen, sinful world. Though we live probably in one of the most prominent cities in our entire state. We're on the Jericho Road right now. But are we looking for the needs of others around us? Like the priest and Levite. They saw the need, but they did nothing. Nothing. Do we see a need? And can we help meet that need? That's what we got to ask ourselves. When a coworker is anxious about their green card status or work visa, do we not only tell them that we'll pray for them, but do we show them biblically how Jesus gives us rest amidst the anxiety-inducing stressors of this life? This is the guy that can really give you stress when you think you're going back home. you got to know about this guy. When a woman loses her husband and is crushed financially with the burden of paying off debts, without a life insurance policy? Do we come to her aid by helping her discern what to sell off and how to manage the rest of her funds? Do we help financially where we can? Do we help get her connected to local agencies whose expertise in this area is going to inevitably be greater than our own? Can we help in those ways? That's very tangible. Those things happen, and they happen often. Friends, where might a hobby or a family vacation vacation or a family function need to be replaced with a ministry of mercy. It could look like serving with a foster to adopt agency, the call here in Bentonville, helping children from broken homes get placed in stable Christian homes where they can learn and hear about the love of Christ. It could also mean serving at the local crisis pregnancy center, loving choices, helping women who find themselves unexpectedly pregnant and who are trying to discern, what am I going to do with this pregnancy? What am I going to do with this child? It could look like helping out there. These may be just one-off needs, but instead, we can be helping regularly. Many of these needs are going to intend for us to help over the long haul. But praise God, because he didn't limit his love toward us because of our sin. He didn't restrict his love toward us because we had rebelled against him. Instead, he laid down his life for us to pay for our sin. He stooped down to our level to pay for our sin and to provide our greatest need, which was reconciliation with him. 
When we limit who we love, it says to the world that God's love is limited toward them. That hurts. Our love for our neighbor is ultimately grounded in our love for God, not the other way around. We live out Jesus' love, not by limiting who we love, but instead by showcasing what it looks like to sacrifice in order to show them the love of Christ, which we see in our second point. Point number two, what kind of neighbor are you? During Jesus' day, stories would often be told with various people in them from Jewish society. And often they would include two people from the religious establishment with a foil in the plot as the (laughs) punchline. And so most of the time, it would have been religious people failing to do something, right? This is almost kind of like a buck against the establishment. Yeah, let's tell that story of the religious leaders failing to do what they're supposed to do. And and who comes along to save the day but the hardworking farmer, Jewish farmer, and the Jewish construction worker? They're the heroes of the story. And so this was a common way to set up the story. But what people didn't expect and that would have sent utter shockwaves all throughout that audience as Jesus was telling this parable, was for the hero, the hero of the story to be a sworn enemy of the Jews, a Samaritan, a Samaritan. Now, we talked a lot about Samaritans before this year. They were thought of as ethnic half-breeds because they descended from the intermarriage of Jews and those that were deported to Israel from other nations that had been conquered by the country of Assyria, back during Israel's exile in 722 B.C. Samaritans were also seen as religious heretics because they followed their own version of the first five books of the Bible and they had a different place of worship. So these folks did not have it going for them. All that to say, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So to make a Samaritan the hero of the story would have been absolutely appalling. The title Good Samaritan was an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan in a Jew's eyes. To give you an example of the shockwave for us, like how we would have heard something like this and felt it, it would be like making the hero of the story the most recent Al-Qaeda leader that had just been killed. Ayman al-Zawahiri. It would be like making him the hero of the story an enemy, the hero of the story. And the point that Jesus is making is that the ones who should have exemplified mercy did not, and the ones who should not be exemplifying mercy did. Notice the progression in this text. In verse 31, look at the text with me. The priest sees the need, but he passes by on the other side. Verse 32, the Levite sees the need, And he arrives at the place where the man is, so we're coming closer, but then he passes by on the other side. And then we come to verse 33, where the Samaritan comes up to the man, he sees him, and it says that he has compassion on him. The lawyer in the story was focused on the kind of neighbor that he should love. But Jesus is shifting that focus to the kind of neighbor that one should be. Big difference. 
Less focus on the man who was robbed, more focus on the Samaritan who actually showed compassion. Compassion is the attitude we're to have toward all people in need because anyone in need is my neighbor, even my enemies. That's what a neighbor is. It's anybody who's in need, including our enemies. So the question isn't, who's my neighbor? Jesus went, what do you mean? (laughs) I mean, anybody's your neighbor who's in need, even your enemies. But the question is, what kind of neighbor are you going to be? What kind of neighbor will you be? Jesus is teaching us that if we're to love our enemies as ourselves, then there must be a stronger motive. There has got to be a harder tonic in our love than mere just self-serving duty like the lawyer. The lawyer knew what was required of him. But knowing one's duty is not enough. The Samaritan didn't have the right law. Notice this, but he had compassion. Loving one's neighbor won't earn you God's love, but it's the very proof that you love God. That's what Jesus is teaching the lawyer in us. To limit your love of others reveals that your love of God is limited, quite possibly that you've not even received God's love. If a Samaritan can show compassion, I mean, how much more the people of God? But showing compassion happens as it's grounded in God's love for us through Jesus' own heart of compassion, which is what the Samaritan exemplifies. No other word in the Gospels describes the emotional life of Christ more than the word compassion. That word speaks not just to kind of a passing pity, but a depth of feeling within us at the gut level. Oftentimes it was talked about as intestines, our innards, and our gut. Right? We feel it strongly at the very depth of our being. That's what that word compassion is getting at. When Jesus saw the distressed widow of Nain and brought her son to life, it says that he had compassion toward her in Luke 7. When Jesus heard the plea of the two blind men, to regain their sight in Matthew 20, or the plea of the leper for cleansing in Mark 1, it says that Jesus had compassion on them, and that compassion took action. He healed them because he was able to. Compassion describes Jesus' heart, and it moves him to act. He embodies compassion, and we see the perfect picture of that compassion on the cross of Jesus Christ. In love, Jesus stooped down to us in the mire of our sin. And he didn't just kind of bandage up our wounds, pour some oil and wine on them, and pay our fare at the end, as incredible and as incredibly generous that that would have been. Highly generous for us to do anything like that. But he didn't just do that. Out of compassion, Jesus came all the way down, and he actually took our place (laughs) on the side of the road. As sinners, we weren't left half dead on the side of the road in need of oil and wine. Our sin had actually put us in the grave and it had left us in need of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus stooped down. He took our place on the cross to pay for our sin against God so that any who would repent of their sin and trust in him would be restored to a right relationship with God and would one day, it would bring about a restoration of their full being whenever he would return. 
Brothers and sisters, we cannot love like God requires if we have not received the love God offers us in Christ. We cannot love like God requires if we have not received the love that God offers us in Christ. It is only loving like Jesus whenever we've received Jesus himself first. And so what does this compassion look like for those who are believers, who have received this love of God and are required for mercy? What does this compassion look like? It looks like the cross of Christ. And it looks like sacrifice. That's what it looks like for us. And we see this exactly with with the Samaritan right there. The first service that he gave the man in verse 34 was his presence. It was his presence. We know someone cares when they're willing to be near. They're willing to get their hands dirty in the muck and mire of our lives. It encourages us to have someone with us in our struggle, serving as an advocate on our behalf. If we're not willing to enter the struggle, then what does that say about our compassion and our understanding of our compassion? But he doesn't just give a pat on the back. The Samaritan doesn't just give a pat on the back. Instead, he provides aid. He bandages up his wounds along with oil and wine. He provides transportation to an inn where he takes care of him. Pays two denarii, which is two days' wages. That's a lot of money. Think about your paycheck, two days' worth. That's a lot of money. That's going to get that man a night in the inn for a while so that he can recover. All of this shows us the scope of needs that our neighbor has And they are quite broad. They may entail spiritual needs. They may entail emotional needs or physical needs or social needs. All of these things showing us the scope of these needs and really the extent of our mercy going out into those very needy areas. And so the first thing that we need to do is, number one, assess the need of our neighbor. Number one, assess the need of our neighbor. The Samaritan saw the needs... And out of compassion, he sought to meet those needs as he could. And so he cared for his physical needs with bandages, oil, and wine. He cared for him financially by paying his rent in the end. He cared for him emotionally just by being there and actually coming up to him when other people wouldn't. All of this is a reminder that loving your neighbor as yourself is going to cost you something. Compassion looks like sacrifice, and it's going to cost you a lot to be able to show it. It may cost us a great sacrifice on time, schedule, finances, energy. And so by assessing the need, we're discerning how we can work with them in their need. Not just doing it for them, but working with them in their need as this Samaritan has. Secondly, we need to assess what help is actually provided that's out there. We need to discern who is, the be- who is in the best situation to be able to help. Who are those that are closest to the situation. It may be a family member who knows the health record of a neighbor. It may be a community organization or a volunteer who has an expertise in helping the needy in a particular area of need. Whether it's a hospital that can provide medical care or a biblical counselor who can provide soul care to hurting parents. We want to try and identify who is in the best position to be able to help those that we're trying to help in need. In this situation, it was the Samaritan and the innkeeper. And as we go about loving our neighbor as ourselves, we must recognize that we are finite human beings. You are finite. 
That means your time and your resources are limited, right? You're not God. You don't own everything. (laughs) And so your time and your resources are going to be limited. You have to understand that. We're going to need the help of one another in the church whenever those resources start to get tapped. And we need more resources. And so we're going to have to help one another whenever we're trying to help a neighbor. Go to another church member. Bring them in to see if they can help out with that neighbor in need. And as we do... We want to wisely utilize those resources that are there to us, that are given to us, even in our own community, who do that for a living. Thirdly, we want to assess our attitude. Are we helping out of a sense of superiority? Out of like just a a motive of guilt? Like, ah, I feel guilty, I've got to do this. Because inevitably, you could actually hurt the person by giving them what they most want, though that's actually not what they most need. And so we need wisdom in that. A wonderful book that helps to uh, give wisdom in assessing those very things is the book When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Feichert. Wonderful book that's super helpful in trying to think through a process of helping those in need and giving neighborly love. Wonderful book. All that to say, Jesus calls us to go and do likewise like the good Samaritan here, even to those that we call our enemies. What's more important is not who our neighbor is, but what kind of neighbor are you? That's what's most important. One final thing that I want us to see, and then I'll close. If Jesus' only point was to show us that we're to care for those who are not like us, those who are enemies, that our neighbor is anyone in need, including our enemies, then he could have just done that by making the Jerusalem man on the side of the road the hero of the story and the Samaritan the victim. He could have easily just done that with that. That's all he really needed to be able to do that. But he didn't. Why did he not? Why did he not do that? Because he wanted to show us that righteousness cannot be attained by one's ethnicity, it cannot be attained by one's religion, one's good deeds, or any other earthly thing that we try to cling to for life, like this lawyer in the text. The lawyer wanted to justify himself by being a good person. But Jesus is showing him that there is not a category of just good guys and bad guys out in the world. There is Jesus, and then there's everybody else. He's wanting him to see that that all are condemned before God outside of Jesus Christ. Instead, by making the heretic Samaritan the good guy, Jesus wasn't approving his heresy, but showing that anyone can be declared righteous before God through faith in Jesus' death for sin and resurrection to life. As others have said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Only by looking to Jesus in repentance and faith can you receive the mercy of God. And so, friend, have you considered the compassion of Jesus if you're not a follower of Christ? Have you considered this compassion who doesn't just come to you and just kind of gives you help kind of whenever you need it? He actually provided you the very thing that you need most, reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with God. His work doesn't just bandage you up His work can actually make you new. It can do that. And so turn and trust in him.
and receive the one who has shown us compassion through his own sacrifice on the cross for us. Let's pray together.